Hello and welcome. I'm Simon. I'm Alexander. And I'm Tony. We are Needy in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 141, recorded on Tuesday, January 26th, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Today's headlines. We're going to start with a focus segment on Power BI Premium. We're going to talk a bit about Defender for Endpoints getting smarter. Melissa Coates made an amazing appearance at Guy in a Cube. High-level execs are leaving Microsoft. Google and Australia is not entirely getting along. And surprise, they're into news. Who would have thought? Who'd have thought? Well, this is the second episode of the new format. And I don't think we screwed up anything much last time. So I don't think we have anything to fix before we dive straight into the uh, the focus segment. What do you guys say? No, like based on the comments we have received and the amazing number of downloads we have had for, for the first episode, I think we did something right for once. So thank you everyone who have been providing us with feedback and uh, who listened to our last episode. I can only agree, definitely. I mean, the, the the sheer number of downloads for that episode is staggering. We're going to come back somewhat later with more uh, numbers because this is cool. This journey is taking off in a way that I have never thought. Yeah, there was a lot more feedback on the last episode as well um, comparing to the other ones. And that may be due to Alexander learning how to use LinkedIn. We're going to have a special on that. <laughs> linked in with alexander nope that is not the name of this episode but you have this week's focus segment so what are you going to talk about i do and i have decided to have a bit of a conversation about power bi premium oh no really yes really so power bi premium has always been expensive in fact it is so expensive that the majority of the customers that i work with uh, they pretty much stop reading about here because it is so expensive that very few people have actually decided to go and look at what it is and figure out if it can benefit them at all and uh yes it is expensive it is from from a European perspective, hideously expensive if you just look at the, the numbers. A P1, the cheapest, and do note the air quotes, um, the, the P1 or the premium one costs $4,995 a month. And it gets worse. A P2 is twice that, and a P3 is twice the cost of a P2. So it is a staggering amount of money roughly the equivalent of some 500-ish Power BI Pro licenses. But I get ahead of myself. So let's start with what is Power BI? And well, Power BI, we know what it is, but Power BI Premium, what can it really do? Well, it turns out that we have a lot of interesting things in Power BI Premium that it's kind of, you're looking out the window and you're looking out over this amazing green pasture. And you know that there are cool stuff out there, but unfortunately you're stuck in this boring gray room. And 
let's start with the, um, the most obvious one, a model size limit. So a data model in Power BI is capped at one gigabyte. And before someone decides to, well, basically spray their coffee right over the keyboard, this is one gigabyte compressed. Power BI is exceedingly good at compressing stuff. Do remember that it is the same format underneath as uh, analysis services. So it, it compresses the heck out of everything. So a one gigabyte model size limit does not necessarily mean that it is just one gigabyte of data. Quite the opposite. It's it's more than that. I've I've seen enormous models still fit in seven in 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 uh, in one gig. So for us who do not work with Power BI, what is a data model? What does it consist of? Well, the data model is basically whatever you put into Power BI because you have the data model, which is the 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 uh, structure of the <laughs> the data model, <laughs> and then you have the data. And on top of that, you build the visuals. So a data model in this case is going to be the, the tables and the data to, to make it somewhat simple. But it's a good question. Keep them coming. So the thing is, if you look at the um, Power BI freemium feature, freemium, Power BI <laughs> premium feature comparison, you're going to see that the uh, Power BI premium gives you 10 gigabyte uh, size limit. Trouble is, that is a bit of a lie because you only get... 10 gigs if you spring for a P3. So a P1 gives you three gigs. Now that is three times the size of a, a shared one, but it is still not 10 gigs. I've had uh, a customer that realized that they were way over a shared one, so they needed a P1. Unfortunately, they were also way over P1. So they either had to go for P2 or do something else. We did something else. And when I was done with it, the entire data model was about 600 megabytes. But yeah, I digress. So that's one thing. Do keep in mind that model size matters. But we can keep going. We have stuff like paginated reports. And what the heck is a paginated reports? Well, it turns out that there are still people who enjoy your old school reports. Uh, it's also known as pixel-perfect reports. And a report, as opposed to a, a Power BI report, is, is static. You cannot go into it and, and click and change stuff. It is like your, well, people in my age knows what I mean when I say TPS reports from the office space. I was about to say an actual photograph. Yeah, hold that thought, Simon. Actual photographs, wow. In, Instamatic. Instamatic you're report. You're learning all the new words today. No, so the, the paginated reports, they definitely have a reason for being. And with Power BI Premium, you can put them into your BI environment just like basically anything else. But then we start to come with to, to the, the really cool stuff, and that is the AI capabilities. We have, for instance, the Auto ML or the Automatic Machine Learning, where you can create and train a machine learning algorithm um, on basically on the fly. Personally, I think that is oversold, but some people like it. But what is more interesting is the cognitive services. Here we have, for instance, sentiment analysis. We have image tagging and language detection built into the Power BI service. And that is super cool and super useful. 
and I can keep going. We have advanced data flows. For instance, we have a, an advanced compute engine that offloads heavy data flows queries. So instead of, of hammering the crap out of your data source, most of that heavy lifting is going to be done inside of the, the enhanced compute engine. That uh, It also gives you the, uh, the ability to combine data sources in, in a way that you cannot do with a, a free or a pro style of data flows. We have something called application lifecycle management. People don't know what it is because most of them know it by the other name, deployment pipelines. One of the main issues that we've faced for so many years, well, about five, because that's how old Power BI is, we've faced the issue that the file format is a binary one. And it is a holy mess to do stuff like um, diffing between two files. What has changed between two files? How do you put them into a deployment pipeline, such as DevOps and that kind of stuff? It really has all been about banging a, a or, or forcing a square peg into a round hole. It can be done, but the results are not pretty. But we fairly recently, uh, this was designed out of, of uh, Microsoft Israel, we got the deployment pipelines, which is it, well, the basics of a three-step deployment pipeline thing. Like you have a testing, you have a, um, um, well, you have the development, you have the testing, and then you have the prod, uh, the production pipeline. You can push them through these pipelines and you can move them to and fro and makes everything so much easier when it comes to really working with um, more than one person. And then we have the Kudigra, the most amazing thing. That is the XMLA endpoint connectivity. XMLA, it, it stands for XML over analysis, and that's an endpoint. It, it means that you can connect to Power BI Premium as if Power BI was an analysis services um, environment. And well, technically it is, but the XMLA endpoint has not been there before. Why would you want to do that? Well, if you want to put all your eggs in one basket, you want to have Power BI be your entire um, BI environment. It would be kind of uh, an issue if you could only access the data through Power BI and, and the reports you've created, right? With the XML endpoint, you can not only read the data as well, you can do that through um, SQL Server Management Studio, or you can use uh, any third-party tool that that is that is out there. Um, for instance, the um, uh, Tabular Editor. We can use DAX Studio, or we could use Tableau or ClickView if we just want to have the data model inside of Power BI, and then we want to do the visuals, for instance, in in a third-party tool. Not only can you read the data, but you can also write the data through the XML endpoint. And that is, in a way, even more important. Because this means that you can do changes to the data model without having to do a complete refresh. I'll give you a scenario. Say that you have uh, 50 gigabytes of data, and 
the first time you do a refresh, well, you're going to have to push 50 gigabytes of data into the service. That's going to be a while. And unless you have some kind of incremental refresh scheme going on, every time you refresh, yep, you're going to be pushing 50 gigs of data. Kind of inefficient. But if you tag on the incremented refresh functionality, you can have a high watermark based on a date, for instance, and you only pick up and add the new rows. Sound kind of better, mm -hmm. right, than 50 gigs. But what if, what if you need to go in and make a change to the data model? You need to add a column. You need to add a measure or anything that gets computed. The only way to do that is to refresh the data model. And bingo, you're looking at a 50 gig data transfer again, and that kind of sucks. Using the XML endpoint, you can go in and kind of behind the scenes tweak things. You can change the model on the fly without having to force a complete refresh. And there you've already kind of paid for the whole thing because this is awesome. Is this something that is unique to Power BI as, as a product? Yes, but not for the reason you think. Because... <laughs> <laughs> the XML endpoint, that is a standard endpoint. It's been there since time immemorial. Um, so that is something that you have available for uh, SQL Server analysis services and have always had. Uh, so it, it's not new, but it is new that Power BI has it. So that's, it. yes, it is rare, but it's it's the other way around, if, if that makes sense. But... but does Tableau or Click have something similar? That's a good question. I think not, but the keyword here being think. And the reason I don't think they do is that they do not behave the same way. They, they are not the same data modeling tool per se. They are more visual tools. I'm sure someone who knows ClickView or Tableau is going to scream at me, but I I think that is the case. I might very well be be wrong, entirely wrong. Another reason why you might want to buy premium is the multi-geo support. Multi-geo support means that you can handle data residency because otherwise all your data is going to be in the same, um, same area. This is kind of sort of the same uh, thing as, as a region in Azure, but it's not the same regions. Uh, but you can specify that my data for this stuff should be in the US. This data should be in Europe. This data should be in Japan, for instance. You can't be more granular than Europe or the US, um, but it's, it's, it is good enough to handle a residency. And I can keep going. One of the, the other interesting things with having a P1 is that you can kind of get away with the whole um, distribution issue. In order to consume data, share or consume shared data in Power BI, you need a pro license. But what if you have more than 550-ish users? Well, either you buy them each a Power BI pro license, or you create a Power BI premium P1 workspace. And anybody who has a free license can access the data because it is backed by the, um, the, um, the capacity. 
So that's that's one interesting way of using Power BI uh, Premium as well. And that is way more common in larger organizations and predominantly in, in the US. What more can we say? Well, well, of course, you can also bring your own keys if you want to have stuff uh, encrypted with your own keys. If, if you were to revoke those keys within 30 minutes, your entire Power BI environment is going to be unreadable. So that's also a, a something that I know people enjoy. So the question is, how do you afford this? Well, for some people, this is a no-brainer. I don't care that it costs $5,000. But the thing is, we just, well, a couple of months ago, we got something called PPU, or Power BI Premium Per User. Instead of buying a capacity, which is geared toward the larger organizations, you're buying the use of most of the premium features on a per-user basis. This was teased at Ignite. It was previewed, and it is now in preview. Uh, it's actually free uh, for anyone to go into and, and, and enjoy this. Um, we do not know what it costs yet. And that is a big issue. We don't know what the PPU license is going to be. Um, a, a pro license is $10. If it is $20, it's going to be no brainer. Shut up and take my money, basically. If it's $30, well, it's more. $40, $50, it's going to be an issue. I don't know. I have no idea. But I can't wait until they, they tell us what, what you get. So what do you get with premium per user? You get everything that I just told you, except you do not get multi-geo support because that's based off the capacity. Well, okay you do not get unlimited distribution. That is also a function of the, um, the capacity. But you get the model size limits. Oh yeah. You get paginated reports. You get the entire AI suite. You get um, deployment pipelines. Woohoo! And you get the XML endpoint. Just imagine how powerful you can turn your Power BI environment, uh, turn, how powerful you can make it um, using Power, Power BI Premium per user. So the question then comes back to what I started with. This, this is too expensive for most people. Yes, but who is Power BI Premium per user for, really? In my view, as long as the price is right, and not necessarily too bad, I'm going to go ahead and say that it is for everyone. Because if you combine three things, if, if you just skip everything else and keep three things, deployment pipelines, XML endpoint, and the enhanced compute engine, these are the three main uh, Legos, if you will, for taking Power BI from a really, really good BI environment to an enterprise BI environment. Because with the deployment pipelines, you can pretty much put in a complete DevOps pipeline. It is no longer um, tricky to have more than one person working on a, a project. With the XML endpoint, you can read and write to your heart's content. There's nothing you cannot do 
with the model when you have put it into production. You can tweak it and you can work with it despite being enormous. And that is a super, super useful uh, tool to have in the toolbox. And you get the enhanced compute engine. You can create mo the, the most amazing data flows. And you can, with these technologies, create the real three-level um, kind of, of BI environment where you separate the data from the data model from the visuals. And that's, in my view, how you take Power BI to the next or the enterprise level. So the, the key takeaway here is if Power BI Premium per user is fairly cheap, then it is going to be an enormous uh, asset. If it is too expensive, it's going to fizzle out and uh, Power BI will have a difficult time to, um, to move forward in my view. It's still an amazing product even without Pro, but there are so many things in Pro and there are so many things on the roadmap to Pro, uh, in um, to Premium, that people are going to feel left out if they, they can't get their hands on that uh, soonish. So that was a, a very quick walkthrough of what is Premium and basically who is Premium for and why, why would you want to use it? What's your take on it? So my first question is that I have a fair amount of customers that runs E5 licenses. So Microsoft 365 E5 licenses, which includes Power BI Pro. Correct. And I know that there are ways to talk to Microsoft if you have a certain amount of Pro licenses to get them into premium somehow. But would there be, in your opinion, a reason for someone with an E5 license to add on Power BI, Power BI Premium per user? That is an amazing question. Thank you for, for asking it because I, I was thinking about it, but I, I didn't put it up. Yes, definitely. It is the, the perfect add-on because not everyone needs these extra features. Take, for instance, the X7A endpoint or the deployment pipelines and that kind of stuff. You might be able to get away with a subset of your uh, users working with these things. Do keep in mind, though, and this is where it gets tricky. There is a, a fairly substantial limitation in place at, from Microsoft to make sure that people don't abuse the Power BI Premium per user concept. And kind of make their own versions of premium. So th there are some things that you can and some things you can't do. But yes, in, in general, I'd say that it is a, a very good uh, upgrade for some users to, to do some tasks. But the vast majority would probably get away with not using it. Otherwise, my, my take on it is that we will see more organizations adopting this and also organizations that aren't or believe they aren't that data heavy. Because this is the way we will consume data. We, we just don't understand that looking at a report requires a license. Now, the, the, the main, in my view, blocker with Power BI has been, and, and still is for some, some, some uh, scenarios, the lock-in effect. You can... You can today build on Power BI Pro. You can create your entire BI environment in a pro uh, on Pro licenses. It's going to work amazingly well. 
but you are stuck. You cannot get access to that data. You cannot put it into a third-party system. You cannot do anything to your data unless you go through Power BI um, desktop or, or doing the the, uh, the Power BI reports. But with the XML endpoint, that's a whole different kettle of fish, and you suddenly have complete control over your data. And I cannot overstate that. Good. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm always, sorry to say, but always surprised of how interesting I find data when you talk about it. And and again, I, I need to dig deeper into my untapped data and, uh, yeah, the beer app untapped, but also the untapped data sources. There we have the name for this episode, untapped data sources. Are, are we keeping track? Yeah, this is pretty much just gibberish to me. Um, <clears throat> but still, yeah, I think it was a good presentation. I thought you, I thought you went well uh, over the features in premium, contra-free, and things like this. So, uh, nicely done. So, why I get five fins of five possible? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we dive into the news instead? Yes, let's do so. And um, I would like to start with some automation and where. Microsoft Defender for Endpoints gets smarter, or possibly that the organizations using it get smarter and, for sure, more secure. That's also a very, very good tagline right there. Trademark. So, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint have the ability to do automatic investigations and remediations. So if Defender for Endpoints find anything that looks suspicious, it will investigate automatically, and if we allow it to, it will also remediate it automatically if it can. So the simplest approach to that would be it finds a malware and it removes the malware, but it can in practice do a lot of other quite cool things, such as stopping processes and services if needed. Up until now, we have had the default option of semi so require approval for any remediation that has been the default that sounds about right to me actually because the auto remediation could be dangerous as well yes but the interesting part is that based on the data from the product group and um, from a number of customers they tend to see that if someone leaves it at semi require approval for any remediation very fruit very few remediations actually happens because organizations forgets to approve it. And they feel uncertain because the approved remediation will still be the same kind of remediation that would be done automatically. And if you don't know what you're doing, it will have the same possible effect. So starting in February, if you have opted in for the previews of Defender for Endpoint, it will be changed to full remediation automatically. So all device groups that you're using will start to remediate automatically if you don't configure it to do anything other than that. And I think this is an essential part, to be honest, because there are organizations that buy Microsoft Defender for Endpoint and believe that, oh, we're now much more secure. But up until now, it's still you that decides. And if you don't have a SOC or something like that monitoring 24-7, you are way better off with running full and automatic remediations. Yep. so what you're saying is that the gains actually outperform the risks pretty much. Yeah, 
Absolutely, because these are threats that you wouldn't have discovered without Defender for Endpoint in most cases. And if you don't know how to handle them, or if you don't have a SOC service that knows how to do that, then it's way better to just leave it there and handle the possible downsides of it. But I haven't heard about anyone who actually have seen it, like breaking something. But it has stopped a number of attacks. Yeah, well, I mean, looking back historically, we have had like antivirus software, for example, disabling Windows from booting. Yeah. It just thinks that, oh, this uh, critical system file is actually something dangerous and just removes it and next reboot will be just blue screen. So, dude, that is the definition of secure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you can look at it that way, sure. Yeah, and and like Defender for Endpoint, in my opinion, is slightly smarter. But uh, if, if I say that on air i'm sure that something will break the day after this airs so So there you have it top tip if something breaks in defender for endpoint it is simon's fault damn it simon yep simon.binder at (laughs) (laughs) all right so another well we have to kind of uh, go back to um, antivirus that's old tech cubes (laughs) so there are two predominant data modeling um, types, if you will. There, there, there are the cubes, which is the old multidimensional way of storing data for BI stuff. Everybody who's ever done any BI work knows what a cube is. And then we have the tabular model, which is somewhat more effective for some data, but the, the cubes still have a huge following. And there's a lot of, of technical debt out there when it comes to cubes. And, and Power BI does not play very well with cubes at all. SQL Server Analysis Services comes in two flavors, cube or multidimensional or tabular. And again, Power BI is is tabular. So if you want to run um, SQL Server Analysis Services or or basically cubes in the cloud, you're screwed. Can't be done. There there, there is no such thing. SQL Server Analysis Services or Azure Azure Analysis Services does not do cubes. But there's a new company. Uh, what it, it's called? Kyligens. Kyligens have a new um, new service that you can spin up on um, on basically um, any cloud you want. Uh, Kyligens Cloud Four. You can run it in Google. You can run it in Azure. You can run it in AWS. It gives you a, um, a cube as a service. That's kind of interesting to to have if you're stuck with a lot of cubes and you can't uh, easily migrate them to a tabular uh, environment, which generally is not that easy. So that's that's kind of cool. And I also must mention there there's uh, a woman called Melissa Coates, SQL chick. She uh, visited Adam Saxton on on Gynecube the other day on their their um, live stream. She talks about governance you just said that cubes don't play along well with power bi so why is the show called guy in a cube because adam used to be in a cube when he was working uh well he's still working for microsoft and he used to be in a cube ah so it has nothing to do with the data model none at all just had to clarify that sorry continue right so Melissa Coates, uh, she does uh, governance, Power BI governance. 
And when I say does, I mean, if you look at Power BI governance, you're going to find a lot of stuff by Melissa. She's absolutely phenomenal when it comes to creating content and, and doing best practices, the whole nine yards. I cannot recommend uh, what she writes highly enough and definitely go look at uh, the uh, the live stream because if you're if you're struggling with governance and power bi and, and trust me most everyone does that live stream is is absolute pure gold cool and uh, two other persons are going down the stream to a new place <laughs> nice sorry um I, I was honestly quite shocked when I heard that first Brad Anderson and then Julia White is leaving Microsoft. I think we uh, we all I would I was about to say grow have grown up <laughs> with these execs at uh, Microsoft, uh, but I, I for sure remember my first uh, tech ed and remembered uh, watching Brad and, and Julia doing the keynotes and so on. So and and to me especially Brad, who's been in charge of the organization, which I'm an MVP of. He has been a huge inspiration for many and have really driven that business area uh, to a very good place. And, and Julia, I think, have done the same for Asher and so on. So so why do we talk about this? And they are leaving to, in Julia's case, it's SAP, and uh, Brad is going to Qual Qualtrics. And, and why does this matter? Um, to me, it does matter due to the unknown future. So why are they leaving and what will the new manager, the new VP or CVP of the Microsoft 360 security, um, the endpoint manager division and so on do? And both of these persons are replaced by persons that have been with Microsoft for even a longer time. So Brad, is who has been with Microsoft for 18 years, is replaced uh, by Harv Billa, who has been with Microsoft for 24 years. And I'm not certain what that will bring for the products I work with. And the same goes for Julia White, who's leaving the role as Microsoft Azure's marketing chief. Yeah, I was so hoping you would have said Steve Ballmer. <laughs> that would have been interesting for sure. But <laughs> Which one? The endpoint stuff or, or marketing? <laughs> developers, 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 developers. That's exactly what you're saying today. <laughs> so I, I, I will sure miss Brad and I can tell you from distribution lists, social media and so on that he will be missed at Microsoft. But... And, and I will definitely miss the energy that Julia always brings on stage. So best of luck to both of you. But, but what's your view on when CVPs and such leave Microsoft? Do you care? Oh, for me personally, I think, especially Brad in this case, I mean, he, he's been in the team for so long. Like you said, it's 18 years. I thought it was closer to 20, actually. So... That that leaves a huge hole for someone else to fill. So, and if you like, it's like you said, uh, someone else who's even more of a veteran that might cause issues actually. Mm -hmm. So, 
I'm expecting innovation still from them, and I'm, I'm sure Microsoft wouldn't put the wrong person there. Uh, other than in an accident, maybe they wouldn't expect this, but we'll, it's, it's going to be exciting to see what happens next with those positions. Yeah, I, I see it as, as two, two uh, aspects. One is the, the purely technical, who's going to do the, the work, who's going to do the job. And that is kind of the the simpler one because they have a huge talent pool, and I'm, I'm as you've said, I'm sure they're going to be putting in a, the the right person. But the other one is the the um, the kind of signal that having two very very uh, prominent CVPs and VPs leave. Now it it can just be timing, and it most likely is. But I'm sure quite a few people. Um, have a bit of a cold sweat thinking, okay, what, what's going on? Is there a shakeup going on? Is there uh, something that we don't know and so on and so forth? So it always spreads, um, confusion and in, in some ways fear, but then again, change is inevitable. Change is something that is a fact of life. And Microsoft has had a long run with these people. So mm-hmm. well, we, we don't know. I'm, I basically just did a monologue on, I have no idea. Sure, and speaking of these prominent people, by the way, guys, uh, I don't know if you already saw, but uh, the Microsoft uh, Ignite Spring Update is actually coming in a month's time, about uh, in the beginning beginning of March, so March the 2nd to the 4th. It's going to be digital again, of course it is, just like last year. However, this time around, I'm actually... I have a little bit of a gut feeling that there might be something more interesting being presented here this time around because the last last one was pretty bad in my opinion it was more like a you know four day stream of microsoft commercials pretty much so i'm hoping that the spring update will bring some actual product news that might be interesting to look at so we'll have to keep an eye out on that so march the second the fourth and if you can't use any web search engine, we'll just leave the link below in the description. <laughs> and speaking about search engines, you also had an, a news item on Google. Uh, yeah, so this was a news bit I heard about during the weekend uh, that went here. So Google threatens to leave Australia. Uh, seemed a bit like a provoking... Uh, discussion or news item good eye so, mate <laughs> yeah goodbye mate <laughs> so uh the thing the whole thing uh, the the issue is uh with regarding the australian government that is actually trying to impose a uh news outlet link tax for google entries so if google is linking to a like a newspaper they have to pay a tax for that link and while Google stated pretty much that they weren't actually against the principle of having to pay something or something to the media houses in Australia. However, this would affect their pretty much their global business because then Australia would be the only place and then other places would like to join in on that cash flow. So it's it's more of a principle decision from Google to just, oh, we'll drop Australia. We don't need Australia. If that tax gets approved. 
Yeah, and, and I would say that you can argue like the, the entire discussion they are having is that they claim that this will impose on the freedom of internet. But I'm really looking forward because I, I believe this will be happening. I'm convinced that we will see this happening at some point where a big tech giant leaves a country. We already had this discussion pretty much in Sweden as well in the recent years. Yeah. I remember the larger media outlets here trying to like tax Google or forbid them from linking to their, to their news, news, news articles and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just the usual backward thinking of these old institutions. So they, they just don't get it. We are driving traffic to their site. So how can that be a bad thing that they want to tax? That's absurd. Yeah, but I think the the I think what they claimed is that the the organizations that makes the ad, uh, adver, uh, adver, uh, advertisement would rather pay Google for that rather than paying the news outlet. Yeah, and Facebook too. Yeah. So quite interesting and we will see where this goes. Well, Australia can always go to DuckDuckGo. Yeah. Ali, gay. No, we'll, we'll stop there. Moving on to something that isn't as horrific as my sense of humor. News in Microsoft Intune. And there aren't really any huge news items, but one that I found quite interesting. We have briefly touched on Microsoft Tunnel, which is basically Microsoft's VPN service which you can run on most platforms, and that is now extended. So you're able to run Red Hat Enterprise Linux with Microsoft Tunnel. And I find that quite interesting that Microsoft will be supporting a Linux endpoint with their VPN service, because that shows that Linux is something Microsoft counts on as an endpoint for the future. And I can only hope that we'll see more management features and security features through Intune and other services heading to Linux as well. Cool. Definitely interesting. So we're kind of getting to the the tail end of this episode, but we 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 have a few interesting events coming up. I am going to be speaking at NDC or the Nordic Developer Conference in London. Uh, the, the NDC is running between the 27th and the 29th, so it's just a few days. I'm going to speak in on the 29th, and I'm doing um, the Untruthful Art. We'll see if I'll, I'll be allowed back to NDC after that one. And uh, I'll be speaking at the Citrix user group on February the 9th. I may even have run into getting a small keynote on security with Citrix and Microsoft, so I'm really looking forward to that. And speaking about EUC and desktop as a service, I'm also hosting, together with Patrick Keller, the WVD Tech Fest on February 25th. So the Citrix user group will be in Swedish and the WVD Tech Fest will be in English. And then we are doing Scotland again. Yeah. So unfortunately this time we're not going to be uh, be there because the Scottish summit is going to be virtual, just like anything else. But on February the 27th, we are both speaking at the Scottish summit. That's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I think, how many speakers are there? 400? Yeah, it's, uh, let's just say that they have upped the game. They, I vividly remember when we were there. You were there last time as well, right? I, I haven't been. 
you haven't been. Oh, I was there and uh, the, the organizers, they, they kind of looked like ghosts because they started to realize just what they had done. They have kind of bitten off more than they can chew. And now they've updated the crap out of it. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's, it's mm -hmm. huge. Something that is not huge, quite the opposite. It is very, very small is the 8KB conference. And it's an amazing conference geared towards really, really deep tech stuff of SQL Server. It's super technical. It's super nerdy. I think the five or six speakers, and trust me, your brain cannot handle more than that. They have over a, I think it was over a hundred attendees uh, set. So this is going to be on January the 27th. I am definitely not speaking because I'm not qualified, but you definitely want to look at it if you're you're into SQL Server and on on a technical level. Yep, and as per usual, I won't be speaking anywhere because I'm not doing those kind of gigs. Uh, however, I will be chatting a lot uh, with our friend Andy Sandwich. You know the guy. Andy <laughs> Sandwich. Yep, it's a thing. Uh, trust me. So. Uh, he has finally gotten his uh, the tech info. No, let's see here the tech the infotech gamer uh, streaming up and running. So he has been streaming World of Warcraft and discussing tech um, on a little lighter basis on Twitch. So we'll leave a link below, and you can of course always catch Andy on Twitter and stuff like that. And on that streamed bombshell, it's time to end the show. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode. Knee Deep in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Tony Holopainen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com.